drive in this morning, I have to say that one of my greatest fears was that you would make me cry before I have to preach. I am certainly glad that men don't wear mascara because I would be putting the scare in mascara right now. Glory to God and praise the Lord. For the team, the unified team that we have had here at Calvary. At my installation service, I had a very important conversation with Dr. Richard Snavely, who served here for 28 and a half years. And Dr. Snavely, who was a little shorter in stature, he had a way of taller men like me. He would grab us by our collar and he would pull us down to his level so that we knew who was in charge. And he said, be sure you get unity on the pastoral staff. That was his word of counsel to me. And folks, I can honestly say that the team of people we have had here, especially over these last seven years, Mr. England and I both would voice how much we have appreciated both Pastor Rodney King and Brad Wiggs and the other members of the staff unifying together. You need to treasure that because there are churches all across this nation who long for that. They long for that kind of like-minded unity. And it begins there on the pastoral staff. If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. I will apologize in advance for emotional pauses today, and for some reason or other, my ear must be different because my microphone is not staying on very well this morning. On this 88th anniversary of Calvary Baptist Church in Findlay, Ohio, it's time to remember our past, to rejoice in our present, and to look to the future. It really would be hard to think of a better passage to turn to than the one you have open before you. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, as Paul, as part of an extended prayer, is expressing this to the church at Philippi as he prays for them, and that's basically his point, is that he's praying for them. As part of that prayer, he is saying, being confident of this very thing. What is this thing? What is he talking about? That he who or which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is the confidence in which we go forward into the future. And I would ask if we could stop to pray and cry out to the Lord for his blessings on us. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for Calvary Baptist Church and for these 88 years. I ask, dear Heavenly Father, that you would help every one of us to treasure our fellowship, our membership with each other. We have been made brothers and sisters by that precious bond of the blood of Christ, and we rejoice over that. The fellowship of the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Father, we magnify you and praise you and ask that you would be exalted in this service. If there are those who have never come to know you or enter into that fellowship, that this blessed day would be the day on which they come to know you. 
And for those who do know you, they would, they would take new pleasure, new rejoicing in the majestic way that you are at work. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul begins by saying, being confident, being confident. The idea is that there is an assurance. That assurance is based on his trust in the Lord, that the Lord is at work in this situation. And it's, it's important to define that term so that we understand exactly what it means and how the Lord is at work in all of us. I think sometimes defining terms is one of the most important things any of us can do. I think I may have told you the story about the old boy from West Virginia who was a ne'er-do-well and he was off and away on job, sometimes truck driving, and he wasn't home very much and he came to his family on one occasion and he found out that his one and only daughter was dating a boy from Ohio. And he said, there ain't no daughter of mine going to marry any boy from Ohio. We're going to stop this right now. And he lectured her and scolded her and he got his boys together and said, boys, I see they're, they're building a bridge here across the Ohio River. Here's what I want you to do. This boy she set her heart on named Clarence, I want you to go and I want you to get your guns and I want you to go over there and threaten Clarence and tell him that you're going to kill him if he keeps on dating your, your daughter because I am not going to have that boy courting your sister anymore. And he said, yes, Paul. And the day came that they, uh, the bridge was completed and the ribbon cutting occurred and the Paul happened to be there and he said, all right, boys, get your guns, go over there and talk to this Clarence and tell him, give him what for and tell him never to come back. They were gone for about 25 minutes, and then they came right back, and he, Paul said, that was quick. And they said, Paul, we, we, we don't think we can take him. And he said, well, why do you say that? He said, Paul, there's a sign out there on that bridge that says, Clarence, 17 feet, 2 inches. Paul, he's too big for us. We, we just don't think we can take him. See, one of the most important things is, is actually defining terms. And so when Paul says here being confident, is it just a like a, a little bit of an assurance. No, the words there convey this deep abiding trust. And you can see why right there in the verse. Paul made this statement, and you saw it there on the screen a few moments ago. I put in brackets the word all. That word in the, the original is plural. He's referring there to the entire congregation. If you're from the South, you say you all or y'all. The idea is you all. It's, it's for the entire congregation in our very individualistic American society, we tend to think of this only for ourselves. that, that I can be confident of this very thing. He's, he's begun it in me. Well, really in its context, it's speaking of the entire congregation together. Paul does exactly the same kind of thing in Ephesus when he, when he wrote to the Ephesians and he talks about that the fullness of God dwells in you. He's not talking to one individual, he's talking to the entire congregation all working together. So you might get the idea when you look at Philippi and say, well, maybe here uh, it's a church without problems, uh, without difficulties. And all you have to do is read the entire book. And I would encourage you even this afternoon, read it in one sitting. Just sit down and read all the way through. And you can see that he has this great assurance and this certainty, even though the church had problems. The problems that they uh, talked about here they had strife. You look at chapter 2, verses 3 and 14, there's a reason that Paul specifically mentions, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. 
They had difficulties with false teachers. And then he turns right back around in chapter 4, and he comes back and talks about even more strife inside the church at Philippi. So that, that question, that issue, always has to be before our minds. When we talk about what it means to, Paul says, fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. That idea of strife can actually drive people away. I may have told you the story about the lady who said to her husband on a Sunday morning, honey, let's, let's go to church. He says, no, I'm not going back to that church anymore. And she said, honey, come on now. We ought, we ought to go to church. I mean, let's go, let's go to church. He said, no. He said, when I walk up to people, they look the other way. And when I, I walk into some conversations, everything goes quiet. And he says, I can't get the men to even look at me or shake my hand or anything else like that. So I'm not going back. She said, honey, you're the pastor. You've got to go back to the church tomorrow. There's a lot more truth in that as I talk to pastors across the country than any of us would like to admit, but many times it is because of strife inside the congregation. This lesson, this message to Philippi was specifically designed to draw that because Paul, Paul had a special relationship with this church at Philippi. When you think about how uh, people go out and do fundraising. I was on the phone yesterday with somebody who called me and they, they needed to raise funds for a Christian camp in this case uh, that was in the, in the south, out on the Atlantic coast. And, and they asked me, they said, you know, how do I go about this? I said, well, let me just encourage you to go to the book of Philippians and notice the way the apostle Paul approached this. He, you know, he did not say, hey, I'm the best. Hey, I'm the greatest. Hey, you know, send me money. Now, really, what he, what he was really doing was he was developing partners, and he was encouraging the people that, that fruit would abound to their account as they gave, and that's exactly the way they approached it. Always with the idea that the believers there were greatly blessed, because look what it says in Colossians 1, 26 and 27 up there on the screen. Even the mystery, which has been hidden across the ages from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. And what is that mystery? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Dear friends, here is the confidence. This is what we're really driving at. And I'm hoping here that everybody is paying attention to this, that he's talking about Christ in you, the hope of glory, who is at work, even in our situations. That is our great joy, and that is our great rejoicing. I know I speak for Pastor Rod, Brad Wiggs, Tim England, all the rest of the staff. Even when you see the grace of God laboring in all of us, what are we really saying to each other? We're saying, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but in thy name give glory. It's really all about the Lord and his work. Now, here in Philippians, this is especially interesting because you can see the work of the Trinity that is at work here. You can see it in chapter 1 and verse 6 when he says, he, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, he's referring to God the Father. You can see it in the context. But he's also referring to God the Son, chapter 1 and verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. It's the work of the, the, uh, the Christ, the Son of God, who's at work as well. 
And then finally, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. You can see this in chapter 1 and verse 19 when Paul specifically says, it is by the supply of the Holy Spirit working in all of us. And so here's one of the great things that we have to rejoice in today. And I didn't put this in the manuscript, but it's worth your careful consideration this afternoon. In Philippians chapter 2, when he starts out, he says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, in other words, the word of God working in us, then he says, Fulfill ye my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Specifically, what he's driving at there is that the relationship inside the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the fellowship they enjoy is the same kind of fellowship that we can enjoy as individual believers. You see exactly the same thing in 1 John chapter 1 when he says that I write these things that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. I will never forget when I first came here to Calvary just how divided we were. I still remember we were so divided that I as pastor only got about a 78% vote and you had to get a 75%. And the guys apologized to me, but they said to me, that's probably right now like getting a 100% vote uh, here, just so you know. That's how divided our congregation is. And so when I came, I really began to try to put the super glue of God's grace into these fractures. And there were about eight of them. They included things like uh, translations, uh, music. They included things like uh, public school, homeschool, which was brand new, and uh, uh, Christian schools. I mean, there was, just, there was just division all around. I still remember one Sunday morning that I, I really labored in Philippians 2, and, and I wept with the people, and I just cried and said, look, folks, we really, really need to be uh, like-minded, and I was weeping. I went out afterward, and one of the men who was here in the congregation at the time, he says, well, I'm, finally, I'm glad that you finally preached a message from your heart. And I mean, I was, just, I was just dumbfounded. I mean, I was decimated that I had poured my heart into like-mindedness and to have somebody come and make a comment to me right, like that right afterward. I'll just give you a little note about this because I don't think I've ever said it from the pulpit. I know I've said it to some of you privately. Folks, I'll tell you when your pastor, when your preacher is most vulnerable. When he's most vulnerable is right after he has labored to pour out his heart in a message from God's word. And right afterward in the foyer, you would not believe some of the things that are said to pastors. And that's when he is most vulnerable. And sometimes I think Satan actually knows that. And so those are the times when those, those comments come in that can really, really, really be painful. As we labor together, as we pray together about who our new pastor will be, I encourage you to uphold that entire process in prayer and cry out to the Lord and be supportive of God's man as he comes. You can see here in this passage when he talks about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit who are at work, you really can derive three really excellent principles here because Knowing that the Trinity is at work in all this, you, you ask the question, okay, how do we, since it's, it's the Trinity who's at work, how do we derive any benefit from this? And those answers are throughout the scripture, but especially you can see it in three ways. Number one, God is able. Out of curiosity, how many of you were here when we renovated the auditorium 
And we actually, while we were renovating the auditorium, we actually had two services every morning down in Spurgeon Hall and Sunday mornings, uh, Spurgeon Hall and Cary. How many of you were here at the time that you, you remember that? Many of you remember that that whole series was God is able. I think the first person to say it to me was Gene Trantham, who came to me and said, look, I know one of these days you're planning to write a lot of books. Can I encourage you to write a book about that one, about God is able? And we'll talk about this during the Sunday school time. That is very much one of the things I'd like to consider. But when you think about the fact that God has this majestic ability and he has this great enablement, the question is, how do we, how do we participate in that? How, do, how God is able, but does that mean that we are able? And the answer in scripture is, it is God's powerful promises. You can see this in passages such as 2 Peter chapter 1, where he talks about these exceedingly great and precious promises. That, that verse in the original uses one of those, those mega words. It's, a, it's the mega power of his promises. You see, the Christian life is not lived by promises made to God. It, it's made by abiding in and trusting in the promises that came from God. That's a common misconception, even among believers, that they think, well, I have to promise the Lord I'm going to do certain things, and then I have to fulfill my promise. What's actually more powerful is that we go and learn the promises of God, which are very, very powerful, and let those really sink into our souls and impart to us that divine enablement. Then you ask the question, okay, if God is able and his promises are powerful, then uh, what, do, what do we do? What do we do when we fail? I mean, because we're all very conscious of the fact that we have failed at times. What do we do? Well, what you learn in the scripture is that failures aren't finished. And you can see it throughout the scripture. I listed one here for you in your notes this morning. If you went over to Hebrews chapter 11, we won't turn there right now. But here's Abraham. And you may hear people say, wow, Abraham. I mean, think about, look, Abraham, on two separate occasions, actually put his wife into an adulterous situation. I mean, you talk about a terrible failure. The second one was with Abimelech, and the Lord gave Abimelech a dream during the night. And the Lord said to Abimelech in his dream, you're a dead man. (laughs) If you had a dream and you knew the Lord was speaking to you and the Lord says, you're a dead man, would that get your attention? It certainly got Abimelech's attention. And the Lord delivered them from that situation. So there's really, really clear in Scripture that that at times Abraham failed. So why is he listed in Hebrews chapter 11? Why is he listed in the great hall of faith? Why is he listed there among the faithful? And the answer is it was because of the Lord's work in him, his prevailing faith. Faith in what? In the fact that God is able and that God has given powerful promises that we can latch on to, that we can hold on to. I listed in your notes here this morning, and I hope that you got a copy of the manuscript. And for those of you watching online this morning, I know many of you have been in your homes, and I know that you're watching uh, here online this morning, that the manuscript is available there on the website if you'd like to look at it. I want you to think about just how powerful those promises are. Over the years, one of the privileges I have had is to be at the bedside of many people who were going into eternity. I am very conscious of the fact that it's almost like 
Elijah being caught up in a whirlwind. You wouldn't have to think about this very long before you think about who used to sit where here in our congregation. And it's as if they have gone up into heaven by a whirlwind. You know, one of the ones you've heard me talk about was you know, when Vivian Neal passed away. And I, I, I went up to the room and, and Charlie and Susan wanted to, wanted to wake her up. And I said, oh, no. And they said, no, no, she'll want to know you're, you've been here. So they, he said, Viv, Viv. And he, he, he finally woke her up and Vivian looked up and saw me. She said, pray that I go quick. <laughs> I had never had that happen to me before. And so I privately prayed, Lord, I mean, here, here's what she really wants to do. Clova Peterson years ago over at the old Fox Run, I walked into her room and said, Clova, how you doing? She says, I'm a wanting to go home and I'm a wishing it would be soon. And certainly one of the most startling that occurred was at the time Bill and Doris Ball were here. Remember Bill and Doris and their, Bill's sister was Betty Brown. Betty Brown uh, knew, she went into the hospital and they had her on a respirator and uh, she knew her time was probably very short. And uh, they, Betty said, I don't, want, I don't want to be on this respirator. So they took her off the respirator and immediately she began to re- just really sink fast. They put her right back on the respirator. And so Doris called me and said, so here's what's going on. And uh, she really wants that respirator off and she wants it off tomorrow morning. Could you go by and, and spend time with her? I said, I, I absolutely will. Um, we, have a, we have a kind of a shortcut. Now that they've redone the intersection down here, we have a shortcut, but uh, Pastor Lance Walker taught me this back way to get into the hospital, and you, we could get there in six minutes or so and be in a room and then be back in our offices six, six or seven minutes later. I went into the room, and the nurse was already fiddling with the respirator and getting ready to turn it off. And I saw Betty just sitting there, and you could tell she was down and really discouraged and just kind of, you know, wondering what was going to happen next. So I said to her, Betty, let's talk. And the nurse saw who I was, and she immediately got out of the room. And I said, Betty, here's what's getting ready to happen. You know the Lord Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, do you? And she nodded and said, I said, okay, here's what's getting ready to happen next. If you don't survive, if they turn off that respirator and you go to glory, the Bible says that you're getting ready to be among the spirits of just men made perfect. That's Hebrews chapter 12 in that wonderful vista there, 22 down through about 24. You're getting ready to be among the spirits of righteous men made perfect. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if our, if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens to be absent from the body is present with the Lord. And the more I quoted those promises, I watched Betty Brown just sit up straighter and straighter and straighter and straighter. And before long, she was looking me right in the eye with this boldness. I mean, I was astounded by the way she was grasping those promises and and the way she was taking hold of those. And when we talked about our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. And folks, by the time that conversation, she was sitting up so straight in that bed, and she had this look in her eye that just had boldness. And she was just looking at me like, you know, I get it, I get it. And she couldn't talk, but I said, Betty, what I'm perceiving is that you really are holding on to those promises 
promises. And so you're, you're basically getting ready to go. And she gave me this firm one nod head shake that said, I sure am. And I prayed with her and I went out and talked to Bill and Doris and said, look, uh, keep me posted. Here throughout today, just kind of let me know. So I, I prayed with them, got in the car. Six, six and a half minutes later, I was sitting at my desk here and the phone rang and Doris said, she's gone. Now, folks, the reason I share that particular illustration with you this morning is I prayed over what to say here. It really does come down to how well are you embracing the promises of God. When you come to your last dying day, when, when you come to the end of your life, I mean, look around at all the gray hair in here. Would you, when you come to your last dying day, here's the real question. Are you embracing those promises of God the way Betty Brown did? Are you embracing those promises which convey to you that God is able, and even if you have failed, that failures aren't finished? It's absolutely one of the most encouraging uh, messages I think we find anywhere in the Bible. In your manuscript, I included two examples of what we're talking about here. One would be Samson. And you know that in Judges chapter 16, the, what happened with Samson, it was really, really a terrible tragedy. He had, he had ruled as a judge for 20 years in Israel. And the Bible, for whatever reason, doesn't tell us a lot about the wonderful things that happened during those years. But it does tell us about many of his failures. And you know that he wasn't supposed to do three things. He wasn't supposed to touch a dead corpse. He wasn't supposed to drink wine. He wasn't supposed to cut his hair. All three, he did it. They captured him and they blinded him and then made him like an animal, just basically turning a grindstone. And the Philistines were just really rejoicing over that. But then you come to Judges chapter 16 and verse 22, and it says, but the hair of his head began to grow again but the hair of his head began to grow again. How many of you were here 27 years ago, if my math is right, 27 years ago on anniversary Sunday when I preached the message on, but the hair of his head began to grow again? How many of you still remember that back in those days? It is a powerful, encouraging message. You can paint Samson as black and as dark as you want to paint him. I mean, use the scripture brush and just say, oh, I mean, Samson blew it here and he blew it here and he blew it here. You can, you can go through that story and say, whoa, you talk about somebody who failed over and over and over again, but the hair of his head began to grow again. And what was that a sign of? of God's supernatural enablement of him. Samson went on as the defender and deliverer of Israel. He actually took out more of the enemy in his death than he had taken out in his entire life. And those of you who were here will remember the rest of the story of what happened. At the time, we had a balcony in here, and believe it or not, that balcony covered almost halfway up of the auditorium here. People used to tell me they sat back here in the back. I think it was 2004, around Fine Tim Hogue, 2003 or four. we did the auditorium renovation. People who sat back in the back where you're sitting said it was like this. You're kind of down there looking to see if you could see what was going on up at the pulpit. At the time, the sound room was all the way up here, 
And at the time, we also had this intercom system that we rarely used at all. And so uh, I kind of looked around. I got up here on Sunday morning, and the intercom began to buzz. And I thought, oh, it's some kid playing with it out in the, in the foyer. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know why it would be buzzing. So I just ignored it. Well, it kept on buzzing, kept on buzzing, kept on buzzing. Okay. So I reached over and uh, answered it. Paul Neal was up in the sound room, and I was the only person at the time. Choir wasn't up yet. Paul Neal was the only person up in the sound room. And he said, you know, Pastor, that hair of his head began to grow again stuff. It really, really works. Well, Paul had about as much hair as I have on right now, but he had on this giant black wig up here in the, in the sound room. And he looked at me and he said, that hair of his head began to grow again stuff. That, that really, really works. That kind of humor over the years really caused us to, to know that a merry heart does good like a medicine. Because friends, I believe what I am seeing here in our society and what is going on, we can talk about this a little bit more in the combined Sunday school hour. We have some very dark times ahead of us in this country. The importance of knowing that a merry heart does good like a medicine may be more important now than ever before. It was March 12, 1556, and the man's name was Thomas Cranmer, who was a wonderful gospel preacher who was being persecuted by Bloody Mary, of all people. And since he was considered to be the leader, he was the special target. They imprisoned him, they hounded him, they knew that Bloody Mary had actually issued a decree that he was to be burned at the stake, but they didn't tell him that. They went to him and said, you know, if you would recant, if you would turn away from all this biblical teaching, uh, we could restore you because he was the archbishop. They, we, we would restore you to your place of prominence. And unfortunately, very weary and tired as Thomas Cranmer was, he believed them and said, okay, I will do it. Well, then that wasn't enough. They hounded him to do five more recantations, only for, for him to realize at the end that he was going to be burned at the stake. So Bloody Mary said, well, let's have him preach a message right before he is burned at the stake. We'll have him preach a message recanting all these things since he's now signed this. We'll get up and, and have him do that right before we burn him at the stake as a heretic. Well, during that time, Thomas Cranmer really began to repent and cry out to the Lord and confess, and he began to realize the gross error he had made in his tiredness, in his weariness. He realized the terrible error he had made. So he did preach a message right before he was burned at the stake, but he confessed that his chief sin was actually signing those recantations. And in his sermon, he said, unworthy right hand that did not follow my heart, unworthy right hand that signed those documents against what my heart really wanted. He said, that will be the first to be thrust into the flames. And that's exactly what happened. It has been said that Thomas Cranmer accomplished more as uh, at being burned at the stake than he had as in his ministry as the Archbishop of, of uh, Canterbury. And so when you think about the fact that failures aren't finished, it really conveys to all of us, here is what is actually happening. Here is what God is doing in, among all of us. And again, three basic principles. God is able, his promises are powerful, and failures aren't finished. There's a little bit more here that the Apostle Paul warned about because he did say, beware of the dogs. 
Just as Thomas Cranmer was hounded by false teachers, so the Apostle Paul talked about those who were already invading the church at Philippi, and he referred to them as dogs. Don't think of those as house pets. Think of those as ravening wolves. The Apostle Paul said exactly the same thing to the church at Ephesus, the elders who were gathered there. He said, you know, after I depart, there will be these ravening wolves that will come in. How I thank the Lord for a church that constantly goes back and says, wait a minute, what does the Bible actually say? I mean, let's see, let's compare. I have often said to you from this pulpit, don't just believe something because I say it from this pulpit or somebody else preaches it from this pulpit. Be sure that you go back and really look carefully at the Word of God because these false teachers, they were crafting burdens for men that could not be born. They were redefining sin. They were redefining righteousness. It's the kind of thing that you see throughout the Scripture. Just yesterday, in devotions, Harriet happened to read from Ezekiel 14, and she shared something for me from Ezekiel 14. Have I mentioned this to you before? I really believe that some of the best messages I have ever preached, I got the idea from Harriet having devotions. And I just want to say that publicly. Some of the messages I am most well known for, I actually got the idea from my dear spouse across all these years. Well, yesterday was no different, Ezekiel 14, and I began to read Ezekiel 14. I thought, that's where we are. This is where we are as a nation. Read it this afternoon, and notice how Ezekiel 14 goes from the idols of the heart to the travesties and the, the, the terrible depravity that was going on in their land, and even the way that false teachers were influenced by those who really wanted it their way. You see this everywhere in our society. Okay. So why is Paul so confident? Well, here's why. He says, being confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That is a wonderful comfort to know. It's God's grace that is laboring in us. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, uh, I I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. It's God's grace laboring in, in all of your servants and all of your ministers that way. But what Paul is saying is, here's what I know. I know that the one who has begun this good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. When had that work begun? It had begun according to what you find in Acts chapter 16 by Paul preaching the gospel there at Philippi. Who got saved? They didn't have a synagogue at Philippi, so they went down by the riverside where people were praying there. And what happened? Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended to those things which were spoken. And then what what happens is they're imprisoned. Uh, There there was a demonic girl who was saying all kinds of things about them. They cast the demon out of her. As a result, uh, those who had invested in her lost their ability to make money. And then they were cast into prison. They were singing uh, pretty close to midnight. Uh, It's been said that the Lord sang bass and there was an earthquake there. And what happened? The Philippian jailer got saved and and all his house. And when you think about that Philippian jailer, think about what you see now, these muscular uh, MMA wrestler types, because the only way for a man to basically maintain control over a prison was he had to be the biggest and baddest and strongest man around who could basically physically take them and and do those things to him. So picture this. Here is Lydia, very wealthy woman, a seller of purple. Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened, and then 
that, that Philippian jailer, the big, bad, MMA, muscular type, just think about them together in the same congregation. And here's what the Lord is saying to them. He's basically saying, I have this confidence as I pray for you. I have this confidence that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. That is the power of prevailing grace. In fact, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 6, and I put it there in your notes this morning, in John chapter 6. Jesus said, no man can come to me except my Father which is in heaven draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. I often hear people quote that verse and leave out the last part. They say, no man can come except my Father which is in heaven draw him. Don't forget the ant. He's talking about such a powerful grace that is at work in believers. No man can come except my Father which is in heaven draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. That is the Lord's work through and through. This is exactly why you see it, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So where does this leave us? Where does this bring us to? It brings us to this question for each of us as individuals. Has the Lord begun that good work in you? May I pause to let the question sink in? It's wonderful to look at the church at Philippi and see that the Lord had begun that great work in them. It's wonderful to contemplate 88 years as a church. Folks, do you realize how rare that is that a church is still preaching the gospel after 88 years? Glory to God. I mean, we've had the wonderful opportunity to see the way the Lord began the work in us just as he did at Philippi. Our church began in 1935. And up on the screen here, I'll put the pictures of the pastors. Beginning at the top left, that's Pastor Dunham. He was the founder of our church, 1935. In the middle there is Pastor Warden, who was with us for a couple of years. Then Dr. Snavely, who was here for 28 and a half years. Then Pastor Allen, who passed away recently, three and a half years, if I remember correctly. And since that time, since 1994, I've been able to be here with you. Three of the pastors up there, Pastor Dunham and Pastor Snavely and myself, have had the joy of pastoring this church for a combined 82 years out of, those, the, out of those 88 years. And we rejoice in this and we say, thank God for people who are enabled by God's grace to preach that word, but I'm still asking the same question. And here is that question. And that question is this, has God begun that good work in you? In you. So once more, let's go over it, shall we? Jacob and Noe and I were sitting out in the foyer. Heritage Hall. And I looked at him and said, uh, if you had to stand before God, if you had to stand before God in his heaven right now and he were to ask you, what will you give in exchange for your soul? What would your answer be? Jacob immediately said, I've been baptized. And he said, is that the right answer? And I smiled and just kept on and kept on sharing the gospel. And I think it was six times later, every single time they met with me, Jacob said, that question you ask, you know, if, if I had to stand before God in his heaven, he were to ask me, what will you give in exchange for your soul? What would your answer be? He said, what's the answer to that? And the whole time I was, I was, I was sharing the answer, but just like we sang in glory to glory a few mo moments ago, it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness who has shined in our hearts. In other words, 
the God who said, let there be light at creation. He's the one who shines the light to cause someone to become a new creation. So Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened. And Jacob and Noe were right there in my office when they trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. How wonderful it is across these years to see the way that, that gospel laborers have worked. But folks, just like you heard Mr. England say a few minutes ago from Matthew chapter 7, the Lord said in that passage, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied or preached in your name? Have we not cast out demons? Have we not done many wonderful works? And listen to this, folks. Jesus says that he will say to them, some of those, at the white throne judgment, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I never knew you. It would be hard for me to, to be able to grasp or comprehend any greater tragedy than for you to have sat under the ministry of the Word and Pastor Rod's wonderful enablement in preaching the Word of God to us across these years and never mix your faith with the promises of God in the words of Hebrews chapter 4. Not mixing your, your faith with the promises of God to believe. When Kayla Lucius was passing, they asked if I would come over and spend time with her, and she was just not sure if she was really saved. And I said, have, you, uh, have you, ever, you ever mixed concrete with your daddy or ever mixed a cake? Oh, yeah, lots of times. And we talked about her mixing concrete with her daddy and how it eventually sets up. And they said, remember your handprints out there in the concrete in the garage. And that day she got assurance of salvation because she was, she was embracing, she was mixing her faith with the promises of God in the very same way that Betty Brown had. And so, dear friends, I'm asking you, have you really embraced God's promises that way? Jesus Christ, God's son, was sent to this earth to live the righteous life that every one of us should have lived. And then as our substitute in our place, he died the sinner's death that every one of us deserved. He gloriously rose again to show he could save every repentant sinner. On this 88th anniversary of Calvary Baptist Church, knowing that we are speaking of the God who had begun a great work in them and would perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ, I ask you once again, have you personally embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Has he begun that great work in you? Recently, we had a testimony service that many of you will remember, and I've been witnessing to a young man who was part of a, a biker gang, and he sat right back there and person after person after person in this room got up and gave a testimony about well here's how the lord here's how the lord brought me to himself and it was wonderful i just sat there and thought glory to god think about the way this young man is hearing this that is what our community desperately needs across these 88 years calvary baptist church has been a wonderful salt like light bearing influence in this community whether you realize it or not, this church has made a significant impact on American Christianity. And certainly through our missions program, 
we have had the opportunity to enable missionaries around the world. Glory to God. What's our confidence? Being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you by his gospel of grace, being confident of this very thing, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Shall we bow our heads together? Lord, how we glorify you and praise you for the majestic ways that you have worked in us as a congregation across all these years. I praise you for the grace of God that was evident in the preaching of Pastor Dunham, Pastor Warden, Pastor Snavely, Pastor Allen. Lord, thank you for enabling me to preach across all these years. And now, Father, we ask as we contemplate what you will do through this ministry, we ask that you would perform this good work until the day of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.